back to the Sophos Naked Security Podcast. I'm your host, Alice, in place of Anna Brading, who is having some time off. I'm joined by Mark Stockley. Hello. Hello. Duck, Paul Ducklin. Hello. Hello, folks. And Peter, you haven't been on for a while. Welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be here again. You missed a whole week, Peter. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it feels like it's been ages, but yeah, I think it's it actually does. only been like two weeks. Coming up on today's show, Duck's going to be talking about whether AirPods are as cool as everyone thinks they are. They're not. Mark's going to be giving us the latest in the FBI versus Apple encryption. And Peter is talking about how Ragnarok ransomware is able to dodge security. But before all that, I'm going to give you a rundown of three of the top stories of the week. Messaging app Signal has now announced that if you lose your phone number or access to your phone number, you can still access your account by using a PIN. So does this change the situation with regards to not needing a phone number to use Signal? Because that I remember Duck saying a few weeks ago, that's why he doesn't use Signal. No, so it's a bit misleading. And I think one of the reasons people don't like Signal is because you still do need a phone number to sign up. It just means that if you do lose access to your phone number, that you won't lose your account, which is good. I think, Mark, people were noticing that with Signal, if you if you lose your phone, then being able to get your phone number back does depend on you being able to get a new SIM with that same number on it. And if you can't, even if there's no conspiracy theory involved, uh, then in the past you'd be locked out and now you're not. So it's uh, one step forward, but it doesn't replace the need to sign up with a phone number in the first place. So you're going to stick with carrier pigeons for now? <laughs> I Yes. <laughs> I, I'm not rising to that bait. Not the bait of a pigeon. I'm, I'm not a pigeon eater. I'm a vegetarian, for goodness sake. But uh, yeah, I'll stick with my carrier pigeons. TMI, TMI. <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. Not a pigeon eater. <laughs> Did you know that there's an official internet RFC for using avian carriers, i.e. pigeons, for IP datagrams? Yes, I did. And not only that, but people have used it. Uh, they've actually uh, verified that it works in real life with real pigeons. What bandwidth did they get? I'm, go- I'm sorry, guys. As fascinating as this is, I'm moving on. Apple and Google have rolled out phase one of their contact tracing API, which allows uh, local authorities to make apps much more easier so they don't have to make all this technology themselves, which is a good step towards contact tracing. So this is contact tracing tech now actually baked into the phone. So you kind of yes. don't have a choice about whether it's in there or not now. Yes. that's uh, My understanding is that is it iOS 13.5, the new Apple update just came out and it has it has the client end of these APIs built in now for future reference. So a lot of people love the idea that Google and Apple have actually got together to build a contact tracing system that allows the de-anonymization bit to be done on your phone. So it doesn't require a big centralized database. But as you say, it does mean that contact tracing is here to stay. Yeah, so even after which COVID. Apps in the future will have contact tracing in. Yeah, interesting. Will we get astrology apps that will, you know, help you find <laughs> and meet other people with your star sign in the future? Hopefully, because I know how much you want that technology, Jack. So I really <laughs> hope that you get that. Yeah, well, turn. You know, I, me I and my pigeons, was, I'll be fine. <laughs> I think Peter was trying to say after COVID 19. Is that right, Peter? Well, yeah, I, I mean, admire it, your optimism. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 futuristic dystopian oh, okay. world yeah. and 
finally, um, one of the top stories of this week just happens to be the Darknet video that Duck and I did on YouTube, and he's put a, an article on the Naked Security website. So if you hear us talking about the Darknet in lots of articles and you want to learn more about it, go and check out that discussion on our YouTube channel. And also, I'm going to quickly say, please subscribe because we've just hit a thousand followers and we want to continue with that. Boo. Peter, I know you love that video. Clapping. Yes, amazing. I haven't seen it, to be honest. <laughs> well, when you watch it, you're going to be Well, I've by watched it. it and I think it's superb. How many times have you watched it, Doug? I refuse to say. At least half the <laughs> view count. I did watch it on tour, by the way, just just so that I was watching a video about the dark web via the dark web. I thought I owed it to myself to do that. Good, I'm pleased. So, Peter, as you're back, let's start with you, as you've had a whole two weeks off, and we've obviously missed you terribly. You're talking about how Ragnar Ransomware is able to dodge security, so tell us about that. Yeah, well, actually, I should say tries to dodge security. It failed. Oh. failed. We, you know, we did stop this. Um, so, yeah, Ragnar Locker Ransomware, relatively new ransomware, and um, what it did was, in essence, it installed an XP machine on each of the victims' machines and uh, then ran the ransomware in the XP machine itself. So it's quite quite crazy, really, when you think about it. That, um, this involved MSI installer, which was 122 meg, a 282 meg virtual image inside that, and all of this was put onto each machine that they targeted, all of which to conceal a 49 kilobyte ransomware executable. So we're talking over three, 400 meg of data downloaded to these machines just to hide 49 kilobytes. So, so this is the world's biggest pillow fort, basically. <laughs> yeah, that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, I don't think it was sort of soft and uh, cuddly to the victim. But, um, yeah, so... Um, uh, the way it worked was um, the attackers gained access to the network. Uh, they gained main admin access. They actually created more accounts for them to use, uh, including one called Evil. They created a username called Evil, so sort of spent the last few weeks hunting Evil, which is kind of <laughs> unique. Um, <laughs> it's not really funny. So Peter, did you find Evil? Laughing. Yes, we found Evil all over the place, unfortunately. However, I mean, an attacker creating a username of Evil, I mean, you either don't care about the anyone spotting you or you you're doing it because you know it's a, more of a decoy um so they were using other accounts as well and um yeah it's uh well, do you think they did that in the hope that somebody would go rushing off and spend ages looking so oh, we found evil he wasn't up to anything and stand down from red alert or something yeah, I mean, he wasn't up to, or he, she wasn't up to much. Um, it was moving around through RDP. And, you know, so it, if someone was looking, they'd see that and maybe think job done once they disabled it. But uh, no, there was more going on, I'm afraid. And um, yeah, and basically when they were ready, they launched the attacks. They pushed out a scheduled task um, to all of the machines involved, which was several hundred. And uh, that scheduled task basically connected to an IP address hosted in the US, and it downloaded the MSI installer for Oracle's VirtualBox, um, or virtual appliance, basically. And um, it installed VirtualBox on each machine, and it then used a bat file to enumerate all the uh, the local disks. So, you know, any C drive, removable, um, you know, USBs or shared drives, map shared drives, anything like that. It would basically enumerate all of those and make them accessible to VirtualBox. It then installed, uh. yeah, it then installed a XP, SP3 machine 
inside VirtualBox, and then it uh, ran a small exe or the end of once um, the XP machine was installed, a small exe that was also dropped to the machine, VA.exe, was run. This then in turn launched install.bat, batch file. Install.bat basically configured the XP machine to have access to all those shared drives. And um, then uh, in the startup folder of the XP, there was the ransomware executable. So the ransomware actually starts running on the XP machine, but that XP machine has access to you know the, the host machine C drive and anything else it's got access to, so then starts encrypting the files on that machine. So many security products out there, I mean, this is designed to avoid security products because the actual ransomware is never really on disk. It's never written to the disk of the actual host machine. It's only contained inside the XP machine. Let me see if I've got this. So the the ransomware inside the VM is running on the Windows XP and it thinks it's encrypting the drives and folders inside the XP machine. Yeah, it's targeting the XP machine. It doesn't go beyond the XP. Yeah, it is. It's contained inside the XP. It is only encrypting what the XP machine has access to. It's just, unfortunately, the XP machine has access to all of the hosts files as well. So this is kind of virtualization in reverse, isn't it? Normally you do it so you can protect the host operating system from being messed about by the guests. Here it's to protect the guest operating system from being messed about with by the host itself. Yeah, I mean, most ransomware, well, maybe not most, but a lot of ransomware and and other malware as well, will check if the machine it's running on is a virtual machine. If it is, and it will just terminate because it thinks, well, maybe it's a honeypot or, you know, whatever. I'm in the lab. (laughs) Yeah. I'm in the lab, or even if I do encrypt data, they can probably just restore to a yesterday snapshot or something like that. So it has little value to them. But these guys are obviously, you know, specifically running in this XP virtual machine. So do you think, did they actually put a program thing in there that said, if I'm not in a virtual machine, do not run? Exactly the opposite of normal. (laughs) I'm not sure we checked. They're contriving this, right? So they they get to choose how it deploys. Yeah. And I mean, the actual executable, this 49 kilobyte executable inside the XP machine is specifically targeted for the victim because it's the file that actually deploys the ransom note to the machines. So the ransom note includes the the name of the victim in the, uh, the you know hello message uh, in the ransom note so each one of these files is unique to each victim so um i saw uh, a lot of the questions um uh, about this because uh, we've posted this on sophos news as well as naked security and it's been uh, sort of republished by other vendors as well and a lot of the questions are do they need admin access before they launch this attack before they can install this and i think that question unfortunately misses the the point quite a little bit because this isn't something that just comes in over email and you know the user clicks on it this is an attacker maybe multiple attackers that have been on the network for days weeks months prior to this gaining that sort of domain access you know getting access to active directory and creating the accounts they want so they already have you know pretty much every bit of access they'd want at this point when they actually launch um someone else mentioned you know but you can you can just restore from your backups if you've got you know your offline backups or something like that um obviously backups are very very useful um but one thing that a lot of people sort of overlook is that they keep backups of their data 
you know, all their impis- uh, important you know, business documents, all this kind of stuff. And they can restore that data because they've got some nice offline storage system. So they didn't lose it all. But then they realized that when they try and restore it, none of the applications actually work on the machine because those have been encrypted too. So they then actually have to quite often rebuild the machines before they can even restore their backups. So all of this takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and you know, even when you have backups, that doesn't mean you're going to want to use them. Uh, and you may still choose to pay the ransom, unfortunately, just because the amount of chaos these kind of ransomware attacks cause nowadays. Mm. Now, Peter, so, uh, on uh, Naked Security, people were saying, well, surely you could just add a rule. You know, you could use, say, Sophos App Control, you could use Windows App Locker or something. You could just add a rule to, to block VirtualBox, and then this attack would be rendered moot. And although that's true, my understanding is in this case, they would have they would have worked out which virtualization program was going to give them the best results on this target network. And if they found that VirtualBox tended to crash or didn't work, they could have just picked a completely different one, couldn't they? Exactly right. Uh, I'm not going to go into details, but we do know the attacker was aware of you know the sort of configuration the customer was using. And um, so, yeah, if they found that VirtualBox was just going to get blocked, then they'd have used something else. You know, this is a tailored attack. They deliberately picked what a ten-year-old version, didn't they? Back before it was still Sun Virtual Box, back from before 2010, when when Oracle acquired Sun. Uh, So presumably that wasn't just because they only had an old version. It's because they figured that was the one that's most compatible with the largest number of computers in the victim network. Peter, just to complete my picture of this, so. So inside the virtual environment, you've got this ransomware running and it thinks it's encrypting a bunch of local drives and folders and things. But that's because the drives and folders from the host have been shared and so they're visible inside the guest. What what does it look like on the host? So the, yes. the, the drives and things are still being encrypted. So what's actually doing the encryption in terms of the, the point of view of the host? As far as the host is concerned, so it was our CryptoGuard technology that stopped this because it basically doesn't it doesn't care where the process is that's actually doing it. It's just sort of uh, stopping files from getting encrypted. And um, as far as um, our product was aware, it was VirtualBox that was encrypting the files because that's what the sort of the threat chain went as far back because then, uh, you know, sort of got so, s- so stopped it was, at that point. it wasn't triggered by the fact that VirtualBox was doing something weird. It was triggered by the fact that some some encryption that looks like bad stuff was happening and it just happened to be VirtualBox yeah. that was doing that. Exactly okay. right. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, and that's the thing they were trying to take advantage of because the ransomware wasn't actually running on the host machine. What you, yeah. what you needed to detect was files getting encrypted from a remote machine. And that's much harder because you haven't got any of the behavioral analysis of seeing what is running because it's on a different machine. So you need right. a security product that can spot that kind of encryption happening regardless of what the source is, which ours can. So okay, yeah, because the security product can't see into the virtual machine and can't see what's happening. You'd need Correct. a security product inside the virtual machine to do that. Yeah, yeah. and unfortunately the attackers didn't install software on their XP machine, but actually they can't. So. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should have brought back XP <laughs> simply because it's the tiniest. Otherwise, their VM they'd had to have downloaded would probably have been three gigabytes, not three hundred megabytes. Yeah, I swear, yeah, it probably was the exact reason. Yeah. So they didn't. They they didn't have to use XP, right? They could have used any operating system in there. It could have been Linux for all the crooks cared. They yeah. just needed something that could that had access to the host drives because somebody with the right level of access on the host had decided to trust the guest to that level of 
power. And since yeah. they control the host, they were able to do just that. And there have been other attacks from Ragnarok before that haven't used this technique. So um, it, as far as we can tell, the actual executable, the actual ransomware hadn't changed that much. It was just the method it was deployed that was unique in this one. Right. So presumably they found some, when they did some tests, presumably they found it was a bit of a pain or it was noticed too easily if they ran the ransomware directly. So they yeah. decided to try the extra super huge pillow fort indirect method. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, I, well I, I still find quite funny is, you know, they went to all this effort and it still didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Just as well, really, not really laughter. Because yeah. presumably if, if, if they'd done a little bit more reconnaissance, they might have been able to, you know, they instead of let's, maybe just let's, trying to encrypt one computer, they could have adapted even further. Let's not give imagine. them ideas. <laughs> The point is that they're not just, there's absolutely no spray and pray in this, right? This is absolutely planned as the best way they can find and the best way to loosen up a specific network. And indeed, they're putting on a specific compiled version of the ransomware binary that has the victim's name wired inside it. Yeah, 100% targeted. They've already decided it's you, and I'm going to try and do all your computers at once. That way I can ask the biggest ransom. Yeah, and also Ragnarok has got a bit of reputation for targeting um, sort of MSPs and sort of hosting providers, um, and this was one of those type of organizations. So they they were specifically targeted. So what do you think this tactic has got legs? Do you think this is just a, a dead end for them, or, or are you expecting to see this again? Are you preparing for this? I think it would have been successful uh, against a lot of other vendors. Um, so maybe it already has been. It doesn't mean that this was the first time it's used. It's just the first time we've seen it. Um, so whether or not it will get used again, I'd say, you know, if it works somewhere else, then why wouldn't they? But it's not to the kind of thing, like you said, it, you, you, I mean, email providers won't allow you to send attachments of this size anyway, would they? So this is, the, people are unlikely to see this on their home machines anytime soon. Yeah, very unlikely. Um, I mean, the ransom demands they ask for are well into the millions uh, of dollars. This is, I mean, the attackers like this, you know, they don't have a a specific method. And if it doesn't work, they're going to go find another victim. They, they will just use whatever is the easiest thing, you know. So if they can just drop an exe yeah. to each machine and that exe runs and encrypts, then they don't need to do anything clever. But if they do need to do something clever and they think there's value in the target that they've already compromised the network of, then they'll keep trying until they find something that works. I guess if you're planning to ask for a million dollars at the end of the day, then it's worth putting in a few days of your time to make sure it works. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're talking, you're you're hoping to get millions of dollars. I mean, I could pretty, pretty sure I could work for several, several decades before I would get that amount of money. And if they're expecting to, um, you know, spend, you know, a couple of days, couple of weeks, um, you know, that seems like a, a good investment to go on. So, Peter, just to wrap this one up, do we know how they got in in the first place? We're still investigating. Um, we know they were using RDP to move around the network. Uh, we did find evidence of um, some people getting into the network through RDP. Um, unfortunately, this network did have um, a few security issues, shall we say. Uh, so, yeah, we haven't 100% confirmed which method these guys use, but RDP is unfortunately looking likely at the moment. 
So what you're okay, saying, cool. Peter, is it would have helped if they had read the RDP research that's still available on sophos.com <laughs> slash RDP. Yes, and the short answer of that is just stop opening RDP to the world, please. Cool. Thank you, Peter. So, Mark, moving on to you, you're going to give us the latest in the FBI versus Apple saga. So what's happened? Well, uh, you're right. This is a saga. So uh, Apple FBI have been locking horns for uh, several years around uh, the FBI's inability to access encrypted uh, iPhones. And this particular chapter in the story starts in December 2019, when sadly, a young man kills three people and injures eight more at a US naval base in Pensacola, Florida. The Department of Justice concluded that the shootings were an act of terrorism that was motivated by jihadist ideology. And a little later, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula claimed responsibility for this attack. So, and I think that this is important in terms of scene setting, there doesn't seem to be any doubt that this was an act of terrorism. And I think that that's important because terrorism a bit like uh, child abuse is one of those things that is used by both sides of the debate uh, as a bit of a stick to beat the other one with. So one side says that we need to be able to break encryption because we have to deal with threats like terrorism. And then the other side says things like, you always invoke terrorism, but it's not really about that, is it? Well, in this case, it really is about terrorism. Now, the terrorist was a gunman, a 21-year-old Saudi Air Force lieutenant. And like a lot of young people, he was an iPhone user and a user of encrypted messaging apps. But unlike a lot of young people, he actually shot his iPhone uh, and in what may have been an attempt to hide its contents. Uh, and mm. that was before he was shot himself by the sheriff's deputies who ended this attack. So in January of this year, the FBI wrote to Apple and requested help in decrypting two iPhones belonging to the gunman, including the one that he'd shot. Now, although the FBI believed that he had acted alone, it said it was seeking access to the phones out of an abundance of caution. So it's not saying we're certain you know, that there's a ticking time bomb, that there's something on the phones and we need to have access in order to, to stop another terrorist attack. But just as they would in any uh, case like this, they have something that they want to search um, and uh, they don't see any reason to, to uh, ignore that simply because it's difficult. Now, and I think to the untrained eye, uh, to me certainly, that seems like an entirely reasonable thing to want to do, to, to search something that belongs uh, to, the, to this gunman. Now, Apple replied to the letter saying, when the FBI requested information from us relating to this case a month ago, we gave them all of the data in our possession and we will continue to support them with the data that we have available. So Apple aren't saying, screw you, we're not going to help. They're saying, we're going to help you in any way that we can. However, we can infer from that, I think, that what followed um, is that it's helped stopped short of trying to help the FBI decrypt the phones uh, just as it has in the past, just as it did with the San Bernardino shooter, for example. And I think it's worth pointing out that since Apple doesn't have a backdoor into the encryption that it uses to secure its phones, the help would amount to it trying to crack its own encryption or, or do an end run around it somehow. Um, it, Apple doesn't have some magical key that it could use to unlock the phone, which it's simply refusing to hand over to the FBI. The magic key doesn't exist. So the FBI is basically saying, Apple, please help us crack this phone. And Apple is saying, here's what we have, but we're not going to help you crack the phone. Right. So they might know things like 
the time that this particular guy's account had logged in and where it had logged in from and a whole load of what you might call metadata. But the keys that you use for things like the iPhone itself or for Apple's own secure messaging and indeed for any other secure messaging will never have been uploaded to Apple. So presumably their argument is it's not that they won't help, they cannot help because that is information that is not and was never in their possession. Yeah, and that was certainly that's certainly been their arguments in the past. So it all went quiet. So this happened in January, and then it all went quiet until last Monday, so uh, a little over a week ago. Uh, and the the U.S. Attorney General held a press conference with the FBI Director Christopher Wray to say that the FBI had successfully unlocked the phones. Attorney General Barr said they were able to unlock the phones thanks to the great work of the FBI and no thanks to Apple. Interesting that he put that in there. In fact, it seems like they didn't actually get any help from anyone. Unlike uh, the San Bernardino uh, case where they eventually cracked the phone with the help of a third-party commercial uh, entity, or at least we believe that that's what happened. In this case, they didn't get any help from commercial third parties, and they didn't get any help from other US agencies either. Director Ray said, we canvassed every partner and every company that might have had a solution to access these phones. None did, despite what some have claimed in the media. So we did it ourselves. He didn't give any details about how they did it. He just thanked the men and women of the FBI for months of hard work. And importantly, he also said, the technique that we have developed is not a fix for our broader Apple problem. So in other words, this doesn't mean that the FBI and the Attorney General are going to stop calling for encryption backdoors through things like the Earn It Act, which we've covered a couple of times on recent podcasts. I think that that last sentence is a signal uh, that they're wanting to send through this press conference to Apple saying, we still think we've got a problem with Apple. And I think you can infer other technology companies as well. Uh, They haven't developed something that's going to allow them to crack every uh, locked iPhone out there. So, Mark, for all we know, in this case, they could have just got lucky through painstakingly going through all of this guy's other belongings. They might have just found his unlock code written down on a piece of paper, for all we know. So they didn't so much decrypt the phone as get access to it in the way that that the original owner would have. Yeah. So we don't know how they did it, but I think it's it's – it could be anything, but yes, I mean, it's not out of the question that they just found a post-it note stuck to his monitor or something. Um, but the reason I wanted to tell this story and the reason I wanted to tell it in the way that I did is because I, I kind of like I woke up this morning and I looked at Twitter and there's a, there's a particular kind of domestic spat happening in the UK at the moment, which is polarized into two sides, as these stories often do. It's got nothing to do with encryption, but uh, you can see that the two Is sides that the of the argument went for a very, very long drive. I wasn't. I wasn't going to go anywhere near that. Suffice to say that, <laughs> that you can see that two factions have formed, and the factions are no longer listening to each other. And I think similar things happen around this debate around encryption and encryption backdoors. And I think it's very important when we're talking about this stuff. So I've advocated for not backdooring encryption in the past on the podcast many times. Um, But I think it's wrong if the arguments uh, for wanting to do that, uh, or I don't want the arguments 
against backdoor encryption to turn into some sort of conspiracy against the people who want it. That I think actually, you know, if you imagine yourself as an FBI agent or the attorney general or the head of the FBI, it is entirely reasonable to want to search this guy's phone. That 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 makes sense in the context of what they have to do. And their job is is to protect people and keep them safe and to solve crimes. And so we don't need to, you know, it, often what happens when we talk about encryption, uh, you know, people will make accusations, as I said earlier, like uh, they like to invoke terrorism as some sort of excuse because actually they just want to look at our web search histories and, uh, you know, listen to all our phone calls and, and uh, you know, check what we're doing all the time as if they've got nothing better to do. And I take it as face value that actually they genuinely want to be able to get access to iPhones in order to solve crimes. But personally, I just happen to think that, uh, you know, the, the cause is worse than the problem, that if we, if we uh, invented such a backdoor that allowed them uh, the kind of access that they have been asking for or the kind of access that we expect them to ask for through the Earn It Act, actually, we would create so many more additional problems that we would wish we hadn't done it in the first place. Anyway, that's my story. What do you guys think? Have any of you changed your mind about encryption backdoors? No, I think uh, we're still struggling to make applications secure. Um, and that's enough uh, work to purposely make them insecure in addition to all the methods that all the other insecurities we have in them already just seems unnecessary. Yeah, if, we, if we're not able to actually do the development work well enough to get the security in place, it suggests that we would also not be good enough to do the development work to make the insecurity yeah. properly insecure either, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah, if you follow of, my reasoning. I don't know if you can get a zero-day exploit on an insecurity, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're, not, we're, good, we're not good enough coders for this yet, is what you're trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, the US themselves went through this in the 1990s, didn't they, with the, the whole clipper chip and this idea that, well, if mobile phones are going to get secure voice calls, then wiretapping those calls is going to be much more complicated. So why don't we have a system whereby every time you make a call, there'll be a thing called a leaf, uh, was it law enforcement access field, I think it was, which is basically every time that keys are generated for each call, there are two keys made, one that's used for the call itself and one that's kind of sent into escrow, as it's called, basically put in a giant cupboard under the stairs just in case it's ever needed later. And that sounded like a brilliant idea, except that uh, all the opponents said the problem with giant cupboards under the stairs is they have a tendency to burst open at some unfortunate time in the future. And when that happens, it's not just one person loses their privacy, potentially absolutely everybody does for everything they've ever said. And as you say, then you're in a position where the cure is far worse than the disease. I think the other thing is, as I was reading through that story, you if, if you listen to that story and you're persuaded that actually, yes, it would be a good idea for the FBI to have backdoors to the phone, uh, uh, to iPhones, uh, I think you just have to go back through the story and wherever I've said Attorney General William Barr or, you know, Director of the FBI uh, or the FBI, just put in the names of uh, police forces in a country you don't like uh, and people who are administrators in a country that you don't like, whatever that country is, because every country has other countries that want to spy on it and that it's suspicious of. And I think if you create a system that allows 
a backdoor for a law enforcement agency that you like, you have at the same time created a backdoor for a law enforcement agency that you don't like. Or for any gang of crooks of the sort who are prepared to put in enough effort that they will wrap a 49 kilobyte uh, ransomware executable in 400 megabytes of surrounding guff to avoid it being noticed. But I, um, I assume that crooks will always be trying to break into these things. But actually, you, you could have a situation where a law enforcement agency follows all of the due process in its own country to the letter just as the FBI were doing here and, you know, and, and receives a search wasn't warrant. And I think in that case, it's very difficult for Apple, if they've helped one law enforcement agency, to turn around to another country and say, well, you're different because we don't trust you as much. So we're not going to help you, even though we could if we wanted to, because we don't yeah, tell well, here. We like the FBI, but your warrant doesn't count because you, you wrote it on the wrong kind of paper. Yes. Mm. Uh, yeah. So I, it is a case that an injury to one is an injury to all in in something like this, isn't it? Yeah, and you- as Peter says, there's that compelling argument that that we have half of the public service telling us, you know, the, the half the part of the public service that looks after business and regulates businesses and makes sure that they treat their customers right, uh, saying, you know, thou shalt use encryption and thou shalt use it properly because it's not a there's no excuse for not protecting stuff to the best of your ability, then it doesn't kind of make sense if another half saying, oh, and by the way, this encryption that you have to use to make sure that you protect your customer's data, well, it has to be flawed. Um, it, it's sort of like you, you end up fighting each other, don't you? Thank you, Mark. So, Duck, you're going to be telling us whether AirPods are as cool as everybody thinks they are. They're not. Yes, that, that's not quite cool, cool. Here comes Mark. Go on, Mark. Have your say. <laughs> No, no, no. I just, you know, they're not. It's obvious they're not. They're clearly not. You know that <laughs> Anna not only has AirPods and loves them and rates them highly and promotes them to all of us, but actually has her name engraved on her the little thing that you put them in. Yeah. Yeah, but and deep down she knows they're not cool and she slightly hates herself for it. Well, you see them. Uh, my understanding is that they are, for uh, users of Apple hardware, they are the most widely sold Bluetooth headset by far. And uh, you've also probably noticed that if you're watching, uh, you know, news shows or videos mm. like the one Alice and I did the other day, if we'd had AirPods, we wouldn't have had to wear headphones. So they've kind of taken over. They do prefer headphones though. Yeah, they, they are a bit weird dangling out of your ear. It, it sort of looks mm. like a, like a, like an, an inner ear injury waiting I think to they're the kind of thing that in 10 years' time we're going to look back on, like they look awful. Why did we do that? <laughs> I guess because that that was as small as we could make the antenna and the battery at the current time. Uh, Anyway, this is not specifically about AirPods, but it's about uh, it does involve Apple. And the good news is we're not. This is not FBI versus Apple. This is just some researchers at the Technical University of Darmstadt, uh, not versus Apple, but did some looking into the Bluetooth behind AirPods because it turns out that Apple has tried to do quite a cool thing with the way it pairs with particular AirPod devices. The reason is simple. You can imagine when you're using a Bluetooth headset. I have a fantastic one, but it's not an Apple one. It's the headphones you see in that dark web video. Uh, So I use it all the time and I pair it up for things like Zoom calls, Skype calls, chats with all and sundry. So 
if the encryption on that link is not good enough, then anybody in theory who is able to sniff out or record the traffic between my laptop and my Bluetooth headphones can Mm. get both sides of every conversation I've had, every phone call I've made, every meeting I've been on. So security is kind of important. And we know that Bluetooth has often been in the security news for all the wrong reasons, not least because in many Internet of Things devices, they're built down to a price, security doesn't take front seat, and the security isn't done very well. So Apple, bless their hearts, decided that they wanted to try and devise a a backwards compatible type of Bluetooth encryption that would be a bit more secure than the standard method. Now, the standard method involves when you pair a device, you get what's called a long-term key. Now, I use Linux on my laptop, and when you generate that, it actually saves that long-term key as a string of hex characters, and somebody who could get into my computer and had admin access could actually read that key out. And although that key is not directly used, it's used for every time I have a conversation, every time I turn on my headphones, a session key is generated. If I get the long-term key at any time in the future, I can go back in time and I can decrypt all the conversations that I've sniffed in the past. In other words, in technical jargon, that means there's no forward secrecy in the Bluetooth system. The long-term key protects every conversation because it generates the session key. But if you record the conversation and you get the long-term key at any time later, you can go back and recover the whole conversation. So Apple invented a thing that they called magic pairing. Now, in good Apple... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, you're asking for trouble. It's like Uh, they may as well have called it unhackable pairing. This... this, uh, this laptop that you have that has no Apple technology in it, this MacBook of yours, Mark, that you love so dearly that you just bought recently, um, that's capable of magic pairing. No, being serious for a moment, the idea of magic pairing is it is a way of, if you like, retrospectively adding what's called forward secrecy, where getting yesterday's key doesn't let you recover yesterday's conversations uh, and vice versa. Uh, Basically, what happens is when you... Every time you make a conversation, when the Bluetooth device, like your AirPod, when it asks for a session key, Apple's magic pairing system essentially generates a new long-term key every time from an Uber master key. So in other words, what the device thinks is a long-term key is in fact a one-off key. So it's designed to solve this problem that if somebody records your conversations for a year and spends the whole year hacking your pairing key, then they can get all of your conversations from the past out in one go. So that was Apple's goal. The other goal of magic pairing is because it syncs back to your iCloud account, it means you can much more confidently and supposedly much more security securely share that super master key between multiple different devices. So you can have your AirPods paired with your iPhone and with your laptop and not keep having to repair, which is a bugbear that anyone who uses Bluetooth. I was going to say, does this, does this yeah. mean I have to pair less often or that pairing is in somehow less of a ball lake? Although, I mean, I can't imagine what they could do to make it 
more of a ball ache. But the the irony is that this long term key that I was mentioning, that is the keys to all your conversational castles, every time you repair your headphones, which on my Linux box with my headphones is about once every three days, you get a brand new <laughs> long term key. So I get kind of partial forward secrecy simply by the fact that the system is not very reliable. But Apple wanted to try and solve this for once and for all, and also want to make make it easier to have. Uh, the make it so you could pair your AirPods using this magic pairing system with multiple different devices, say a phone and a laptop, at the okay. same time. So this all sounds great. What about these bugs? What, so well, so you can imagine. Hey, this is a new system. It's proprietary. So although it can it's a, it can be layered on top of Bluetooth standards, you can't yep. easily find out how magic pairing works. Unfortunately, maybe it would be better if it were open source because so it's magic. <laughs> because it's magic. So these magic. researchers decided for exactly that reason, because it's magic, because it's proprietary, and because it's meant to provide a big leap forward in security, let's see if we can take it apart. Let's see if, if, see if we can understand how it works. Now, the good news is that they didn't find any major problems in the cryptographic side of it. Uh, that doesn't mean they're not there. It just means that there were no obvious problems that said, wow, if you use magic pairing, you're even less secure than you thought. Unfortunately, what they did find is 10 separate bugs, which were, they don't allow you to recover cryptographic keys. They don't allow you to do anything like an elevation of privilege attack or to run code remotely. So you can't implant malware with it, but you can do what's called a denial of service. That's generally considered the most modest sort of security attack. Um, but it does does mean that they found this wide variety of different ways in different parts of the code where if they were near enough to you so that they were in within Bluetooth range, they could basically force whatever conversation or connection you were having over Bluetooth to be killed off. And in one case, they could actually force you to go through a reset and completely re repair your device. So that's not something if you're in an important call that you could very quickly get back online. And this, in many cases, doesn't they, sound that different from standard Bluetooth. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, maybe it's not, but remember that this is magic pairing, right? So yep. the good news is, as I said, that there's no remote code execution, although they could basically crash the Bluetooth deem and the Bluetooth background process at will, for example, on an iPhone, they weren't able, at least in their research, they weren't able to find any way of exploiting that. You know, sometimes when you get a crash, you can use it for remote code execution, or you can use it to extract data that you're not supposed to have, data leakage or elevation of privilege. any way that they could sort of smuggle in a, a, a fake... A, a fake thing to pair with you know if you could crash the connection so that the you need to repair with the device that you were previously paired with is there a way that you've got to sneak in a malicious device and that you end up pairing with that instead i don't think they found any holes of that sort fortunately so basically there were seven Seven of the bugs they found allowed them to crash Bluetooth, presumably at both ends of the connection, which could be quite disruptive in you if you're in the middle of something important. Mm. Uh, there was a bug I mentioned where they could not only crash the uh, crash the connection, but also make the device unpaired. Now you would have to go through the pairing process again on your phone, so I don't imagine that that could happen terribly easily without you being aware of it. Um, but it's certainly a much more serious kind of crash than just crashing the Bluetooth app, say, on your phone and having it restart automatically. And the last one was that they could 
uh, they could send, as I understand it, they could send the Bluetooth stack, the Bluetooth software on your Mac, uh, get that so that it was using 100% of CPU. So they could basically lock your Mac out of anything else it was doing because it would waste all its time trying to keep the Bluetooth connection alive. So these are important bugs. Apple hasn't said if and when they're going to fix them because it generally doesn't announce fixes until they're absolutely ready. They're not absolutely critical, but I guess the point to remember is this is a new system. It is meant to be magic pairing. It is meant to improve on the past, uh, and yet they were able fairly quickly, well, over a period of some months, admittedly, but nevertheless, comparatively quickly, to find 10 distinct crashable bugs in the magic pairing system. So not a terribly bad look for Apple, but not a terribly good one either. But And the, the security of Bluetooth is suddenly going to become much, much more important to all of us, isn't it? Not just because we're spending more time on Zoom calls and you know we want things dangling about, out of our ears, but because <laughs> Bluetooth is actually a foundational technology for the pretty much all the contact tracing apps and certainly the contact tracing API that we mentioned earlier on in the podcast. Yes, I guess that a lot of us are going to be encouraged a lot more strongly to leave Bluetooth on all the time, even though magic pairing and these 10 bugs notwithstanding, there are a whole load of security and privacy issues associated with that, not least that if Bluetooth is on, you're kind of going around finding out what other things are around, whether that's a Bluetooth beacon that's designed to tell some app on your phone, hey, you've just entered the menswear department in this department store, if you remember stores. Um, but also <laughs> that you might be bleating out your admittedly anonymized, but nevertheless, you'll be bleating out some evidence that you were in place X or Y or Z at any time to anyone who cares to listen. So you're right, Bluetooth, it is seems to be the cornerstone of, of COVID-19 tracking because of the convenience for contact tracking that Bluetooth only works when you're nearby to somebody. So it's almost heaven sent for contact tracing. You know, the fact that your mobile phone is in range of a mobile phone tower gives your accuracy within what hundreds or thousands of meters. But mm. with Bluetooth, it's much closer than that. So yes, Bluetooth, I think, is going to be a big battleground in the future. And I you're feel- quite right that contact tracing apps are, are unfortunately a key part of all of that. I feel quite sorry for all the uh, women in uh, the later part of 2020 and 2021 walking around with Bluetooth on on their phones. It's been security advice for years to turn off Bluetooth if you don't need it. Everyone's going to have Bluetooth turned on. There's been uh, no shortage of stories of uh, gentlemen sending pictures of bits of their anatomy to nearby women using uh uh, technologies that rely on Bluetooth too, haven't there? Though, to be fair, that uh, on, on Apple phones, there's a very easy way to prevent that. Just make sure you turn AirDrop off. So that relies on the Bluetooth protocol for the proximate exchange of data. But AirDrop yep. is the software that has the unfortunate problem that in order to help you decide whether you are going to find the image that somebody is trying to send you offensive, if you accept it, it shows you a tiny version of the image first. (laughs) So you have to look at it to know whether you want to look at it in what I might call an enlarged state. (laughs) 
No, so the good news is that what, what's called bluejacking, where you're foisting images on people. Obviously, if you could foist files on people without them even asking, then you could probably implant malware. Uh, but the main way this has been abused in recent times has been sending an image. And certainly on the Apple device, you get a thumbnail and it says, do you want to accept or reject? So to reject, you still have to see the thumbnail. There's no option to, to have a blank thing. So you only accept when you know that you've asked someone to send you something. So turning off AirDrop or making it available to only your contacts is actually a good way to protect against that, even if you do have Bluetooth on. So do that anyway. So are we all adding Bluetooth to our list of pet peeves then, or is it just Mark? (laughs) I think he's right. It's kind of like printing, isn't it? You sort of can't live with it, can't live without it. Mm. Um, And I love my Bluetooth headset when it works well because it means I can go upstairs and still be listening to what I'm listening to from a laptop in my study. So yeah, it's very convenient, but it is kind of annoying. The the thing that the thing that blows me away is that when you 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 I didn't understand pairing and that that it was kind of two directional for ages, uh, and I had a pair of speakers that have got no. Um, screen, so you have to interpret a series of sort of flashing blue lights uh, or noises in order to understand what state the pairing is in. So you say, right, I want to pair my headphones, or I, I want to pair my iPhone with this uh, set of speakers, and then you—it's like listening to R two D two, trying to figure out whether or not you've actually successfully paired, and then you do successfully pair, and then for some reason, an hour later, you unpair but you don't know why. And then you want to take the phone and go and pair it with something else, but you can't because it's still paired with the speakers. And uh, it's just, I'm (laughs) sure we can do better than this. Mark, for a PHP programmer, doesn't this kind of weird (laughs) and unnecessary... (laughs) Hang on, hang on. Oh, have I revealed revealed the dark secret? (laughs) I am not going to be described as a PHP programmer. I am a programmer who knows PHP. I am not going to be defined as a PHP (laughs) programmer. Thank you very much. If you want to define me as a programmer, I am a Perl programmer who also knows PHP. Thank you. (laughs) I don't think that's... Strengthens your argument that much, but I'll take it. Does that. with the people who I care about most, which is the <laughs> Pearl community. Thank you very much. Yeah, the irony is that the one Bluetooth system that I have never had problems with repairing is the one on my iPhone. That once I've paired speakers with those, that it tends to work forever and yeah, ever. Yeah, that's it. No, try unpairing. <laughs> the irony is that every time you need to repair, you're essentially solving the forward secrecy problem because you get a new long-term key. It's just that in my case, I don't think those keys have ever lasted more than three days before I needed to get a new one. So no, I don't think you're alone in going, wow, this is a, this is a pet peeve. And then talk about when you get a hire car and you put your phone in and the car suddenly wakes up and goes, hey, you're a cool dude with an iPhone. Would you like to? No, I wouldn't. Stop asking me. (laughs) So is there anything people need to do about this, Dan? I don't really think so at this stage. I imagine that in a future Apple update, there will be a whole load of changes and updates to magic pairing. It's reasonably new. I imagine it's going to be evolve. And, you know, if you're if there's an update for your iPhone, you should be getting it for reasons much more than just Bluetooth fixes. Cool. Thank you. So that's all we've got time for this week, but thank you, everyone. Where can we find you on social media? We'll start with you, Jack. I am at DuckBlog on Twitter, at PDucklin on Instagram. And you can catch me every week on Sophos Security on Facebook.com for our weekly Facebook Live.
Cool. And uh, Mark? You can find me on Twitter at Mark Stockley. And if you like looking at pictures of mason bees making uh, nests, look at uh, Internet of Hens on Instagram. <laughs> and Peter? Uh, I am on Twitter at Altshift Print Screen. Cool. And I'm Ali Rouge on Twitter and we're Naked Security everywhere else. Do follow us on YouTube. We are putting loads more content on there right now. And follow us everywhere else. Thanks for listening, guys. Until next time. Stay secure. Stay secure.